Shalom Aleichem, we are going to explore the Sikha of Chelik Yudzai and Chaga Pesach Beis. For Project Lakote Sikhas, Tafshin Pei Beis, 120 years of the Rebbe's birthday. So this Sikha is, uh, like every Sikha, extraordinary and amazing and beyond description. It, it's very much along the Rebbe's signature style of, first of all, asking a bunch of questions and then giving one answer that answers all of them. But each of these questions are what we might call clutch catches. They're very obvious questions. So obvious that no one bothers to ask them because they're so simple. They're too simple. They're so uh, they're not so complicated. They're very obvious. They're on the face, on the surface questions. But because of that, they are very important questions. And the Rebbe says, don't ignore these questions. This is a big problem. And the Rebbe therefore illuminates a whole different meaning sheds light on the whole different meaning of the Seder. Let's jump in. So the Rebbe says that we find certain parts of the Haggadah which are problematic. And the Rebbe zooms in to uh, five or six specific sections of the Haggadah. Um, so let's do that. Hang on. Uh, so I'm trying to find it, apologies. So first of all, the Rebbe zooms in at the Helach Ma'anya, the opening piece. And the Rebbe says this whole piece is strange. The piece has three sections, and each one has a problem. First of all, the first part is this is the bread of affliction that our ancestors ate in Egypt. Really? The emphasis is that they ate it at Exodus. Why are we sitting down by the Seder and talking about the fact that they ate it in Egypt? Even though some commentaries argue that, that was the bread of slaves, but the most commentaries say there isn't really a source for that. And even if there is, why is that relevant? We eat matzah on Pesach, not because they ate it in Egypt as bread of affliction, but they ate it upon Exodus as bread of freedom, bread of faith. So it should have said this is the bread that they ate upon leaving Egypt. And in the footnote, you know, some want to say that maybe it refers to the bread that was eaten the night before, when, before they left. It still should have said on the way out. It wasn't about eating in Egypt. It was about exodusing Egypt, exiting Egypt. And the way it's written is as if this is the bread that they customarily ate over a long period of time in Egypt. A, is that true? And B, even if it is, how is it relevant to Exodus? Second part of the section is whoever's hungry, come and eat. Whoever is needy, come and, 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 and do the Paschal lamb with us. That's a very strange proclamation to make once you're already sitting at the Seder. If you want to make a proclamation to invite guests, make it in shul, make it at your front door, make it before you start. We already started. You already finished one cup. If someone walks in now, they didn't fulfill the mitzvah of the Haggadah. Now you invite them with the doors closed. It makes no sense. What's the proclamation about? And then the third section is, but now we're here. Next year we'll be in Israel. Next, now we're slaves. Next year we'll be free. That's the exact opposite of the theme of Pesach, which is, this is a celebration of freedom. No, it's a celebration that we're slaves. And one day we'll be free. Like Jackie Mason's famous thing, one day, one more white. The Jew says, one more white, and I'll beat you up. No one knows what that white is. One day we'll be free. And that's proclamation of freedom. That's not freedom. That's the exact opposite. That means that we're slaves. So these are three questions about this piece. And then there's an overriding question. This piece, the placement of this piece is strange. It, on the one end, it's at the beginning of the Magid, as you can see at the top of the page, the beginning of the Magid section of Haggadah, when we're supposed to recite the Haggadah and the Exodus and do the mitzvah of Sipur Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, of relating the Exodus. It's a particular part of the Seder. It's the biggest part of the Seder, one might say. So this is part of the Magid. On the other hand, it comes before the four, four questions. The next piece is the four questions. 
we know the rule is that the, that the whole Haggadah is supposed to be said as a response to the questions, because like, that's how the Torah set it, set it up. Your child will ask and you'll tell them. For whatever reason, the whole Seder is a question and answer situation. A, for our children, B, for our, our inner child, whatever the reason is, but that's how Pesach works. It's explained explicitly in the Talmud that the whole Haggadah, the whole relate, relating of the Exodus and all the miracles involved is a response to the question. With one exception, there's one piece that comes before that proclamation. It's also before we pour the second cup. Is it part of Magid or it's not? Well, it clearly is part of Magid. It's not part of the prior piece. You know, it's not part of Yachatz. So if it's part of Magid, let it be after the four questions. Well, it is, but it isn't. So the Rebbe says, as we're going to see, herein lies the main point, that this piece is like a headline. It's a heading. It's the beginning. It's a heading of what is happening at the Seder, what kind of exodus we're talking about, what are we proclaiming? What's the whole definition of the exodus that is related over the Pesach Seder? And therefore, because this is the heading, it's in Magid, but it's before the questions. It's the introduction. This is the key to understand the whole theme of the Seder, as we will see. But before we get to that, the Rebbe has a few more questions on other pieces. I'm going to go through quickly. The Abba Mayinu, which is the answer to the four questions, we make a statement in here, if God had not taken us out with a strong hand, we would still be slaves. How could that be? There's a promise in the Torah that they'll be slaves for 400 years. That's the maximum. Even that was cut down to 210. How can we still be slaves? It's, it's, it's contrary to a biblical verse. Keep on going. We have later a section where it discusses the history of the Jewish people. Uh, and it speaks about the fact that Abraham growing up was an idolatrous together with his father Terach. And this is the piece of Mithila. Um, now, here's an embarrassing, shameful fact that we're going to have to admit. That's the, uh, that's the Chabad Arog's commentary, that originally our ancestors were idolaters, referring to Abraham and Terach. But now God has brought them close to him. This is in here in line with the language of the Talmud. I'm quoting Maschil Beginus um, Ubasayim Bishvach. We start with the bad news, the embarrassment of Jewish history, and then we finish with the praise. It's a way of, I guess, understanding the, the, the great contrast and be understanding that everything good comes from adversity. If Abraham himself started his life as an idolatrist, Abraham, the greatest Jew ever. So you and I, if we have to deal with our own exodus and our own challenges, it's not so bad. That's the way things work out. Good times follow bad times in a Jewish way. The good guys, uh, struggle comes first. Not such good people, the good times come first and then uh, they uh, self-destruct. But quality people, moral people, the bad, this challenge is first, difficult choices, and then comes the freedom. And that's nominally the theme of this section. Says the Rebbe, I have two questions on this piece. What's the language that there used to be idolatrous and now God brought us close. Now, not now, Abraham. Abraham is 3,300 years ago should say then. The other question is, why is the language that God took us close to his service? Abraham brought himself close to God. So it's talking about Abraham. This is a narrative about Abraham. So it should have said, and now, not now, and originally they were idolatrous, and then Abraham became close to God. One of the great praises of Abraham is that he was a self-initiator. He found God on his own. It wasn't revelation, but it was his own search that found God, and that's one of the big deals. That's what makes him Abraham. So why are we saying the exact opposite? 
So these are the two questions on this section. Moving right along, we have the section of Ahisha Amda, the famous section. Everybody picks up their cup and everybody's singing songs. There's the Chabad Nigin Ahisha Amda. There's the other Nigins. It's a very, very famous piece so that we all celebrate that. If you ask many Jews, what's the most important uh, part of the Seder? Some will say the four questions or the Chad Gadya, but many will say Vahisha Amda. It's a song. It talks about the fact that in every generation we just about survived by the miracle of God. And the Rebbe asks and questions that whole premise. Why would we talk about this bad news in the middle of the Seder? You want to talk bad news? This Tisha B'Av, this the other day, maybe Yom Kippur. Pesach is about celebrating our freedom. Why are we emphasizing that we're not really free at all? In fact, in every generation, we come this close to annihilation. And it takes a miracle to save us. And why is that a praise to God that the bad guys are this close to destroying the good guys? Isn't it natural the good guys should win? Of course, we should win. The whole world was created for the Jewish people. We are the purpose of creation. Torah, mitzvahs, Jewish people, morality, goodness, holiness, kedusha, making the world a home for God. Whoopie-doo, God saves them. Why shouldn't he save them? Why is this like a big deal? Plus, how is it Pesach related? The Rebbe says it, it, it could be in any holiday. In fact, there are other holidays with later salvations in history, like Purim and Hanukkah, etc. It would be more, more relevant to, to, to speak about this fact that it's a constant, it seems to be a recurring problem. Pesach, the initial revelation, the initial exodus, we, 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 at that point, we didn't have uh, repeat uh, challenges, repeat enslavements and, and annihilation uh, attempts. It was the first beginning. It should only talk about the good news. So this doesn't make any sense. And finally, the Rebbe zeroes in on the last line of the Dayenu. It lists 15 things that happened. He took us out of Egypt and he gave us their money and he, and he, he, he did revenge on their gods. 15 different things. He gave us the money, he brought us the Torah, he gave us the, brought us to the land of Eretz Yisrael. And then the final thing is he built for us the holy temple. This is the last line in the Alachas Kama Vakama, which is a uh, a listing of all 15. What's the last line? And he built for us the chosen temple, Beis Abchirah, a term for the Beis Amigdash. So we should atone for all our wrongdoings, for our sins. So the Rebbe says, wait a minute. First of all, why are we bringing in the reason for number 15? The first 14 have no reasons. Obviously, there's a reason why they all happened. One could analyze why all these things are important, why he took us out of Egypt, and why he had to split the sea. And why he had to give us mana so we should survive. I mean, there's a reason for each. And yet the Balagada doesn't mind, the author of the Agada doesn't bother to tell us the reason because everything's in short and quick. Suddenly, when it comes to the last piece, he shows, throws in a PS. What's the last one? He built the temple. Why? To forgive our sins. Why suddenly are we starting to give commentary on this? That's question A. Question B is what does the temple have to do with the Exodus process? We're not celebrating the whole Judaism, we're celebrating Exodus. The temple, which really was built, the, the final temple was built some 400 plus years post-Exodus. Why is that part of the story of Exodus? One could argue that till the splitting of the sea, we're not fully Exodus. One could argue until we even come to the Holy Land, we're not fully Exodus. We're still in some process of Exodus. Okay. But we have to even include the fact that the temple was built some 400 plus years later, and that's key. Number three is, why do we refer to the temple in such a strange term, the chosen temple? It's normally referred to as the holy temple. The chosen temple is a special term that's 
reserved for certain times with a certain context. But based on me, there's holy temples, the normal term. Why do we use this obscure term? In fact, in the Haggadah itself, you turn one page and it refers to the holy temple as base Hamikdash. Take a look. When it speaks about the Paschal Lamb, it says here, uh, top of the page, the Pesach is the Passover, Passover offering. Ancestors eight, the time of the holy temple. In the Hebrew, So the term that's used is what? It's not So these are the questions, just to recap them really quickly in one little quick list. In one little quick list, I'm just going to bring them up. Um, let's find it. So here's a list. First of all, this is the bread of affliction that we ate in Egypt. Why in Egypt? The emphasis should be what we ate upon leaving Egypt. Why do we speak of current slavery, which is the opposite of the theme of the night? And number three, why are we inviting poor people after the Seder already began? And the fourth question on this piece, which is the most pivotal of all the questions upon which the Rebbe will the answer, is the placement of this verse. I didn't put it in my, I failed to put it on my list here. But the placement of this verse is before the four questions, even though it's part of the Magid, which indicates that this is the heading and the introduction to the whole Haggadah and its theme, as we will see. Uh, the piece of Adam Ayinu, it says, if God had not taken us out, we would still be slaves. How does this make sense? Wasn't there a promise of 400 years of slavery as a maximum? Next, it says, Mitchila, first our ancestors were worshiping idols and then God brought us close. But it says, but now God brought us close. What's the but now? It's not now. It's then. It's such a klutz kasha. Such a simple question. To be honest, I think about it every year, but I didn't notice it. I didn't know that somebody like the Rebbe asks such a question. You figure then, now it's all the same. It's not the same. The difference of 3,300 years or more. Between Avram and now, it's 3,000 and... Uh, Five hundred years. Why? But now, also, why do we emphasize that God brought them close? If you're talking about Abraham, he came close, which was one of his great praises that he found Hashem on his own. He didn't just wait for Hashem to reveal Himself, which perhaps was true by others, maybe Noah. But made of Ramayid is that he discovered the trial and error, and committed himself. And here we make the exact opposite point that God brought us close. It doesn't say brought them close, brought us close. Strange. Then we have the Vihisha Amda. But this is God's promise that stands by us in all generations. When evil doers rise up against us and God saves us. So the questions that I've asked, why is it remarkable that good people are protected from evil people? And why discuss the ongoing threat of Jews, particularly on Passover? A, Passover is a day to celebrate freedom. And B, these other holidays we could speak about. Purim, Pesach, and it's not... Hanukkah, it's not a Pesach theme related. It's related to, to Jewish existence to be ill. And it's contrary to the theme that we're supposed to feel that night, total freedom. If we keep reminding ourselves that uh, the next, we don't know when the next shoe is going to drop. And then finally, the last line of the Yenu, he built us the chosen temple to forgive our sins. Four questions. Why give a reason to this final Yenu when there's no reason for the others? What does forgiveness have to do with the temple? Oh, I didn't ask this earlier. What does forgiveness have to do with the temple? The temple is nominally built not for forgiveness of sin, even though that's a byproduct. The purpose of the temple is that God should dwell amongst us. 
seemingly a more important theme than forgiving sins. Certainly more exciting theme. So what, what, why do we emphasize the concept of forgiveness? Why do we call it a house of choice, based upon a chosen temple, and not the holy temple, the normal term? And finally, why is this important to, to Pesach night, to Yitzhiya's Mitzrayim, what the temple will be and what its theme is? So these are all the questions. So the Rebbe answers it by giving an introduction and saying the following. The child, or the adult child, sits down at the Seder, and they're supposed to be told it's freedom. You sit back with a pillow, you pull out all the silver, and you make it beautiful. You do things you never did. And you're supposed to, as Rambam says, feel derechedos, everything is done with freedom, there's nothing, everything's perfect. You're, you're, you're a prince and a princess. And the child has an obvious couple of questions. Really? We became free people and we're supposed to feel free? Hello, we're still in Galus. So that freedom was short-lived. If this freedom is something that God did and God is true, Hashem Emes, truth is supposed to last and here Hashem took us out of Egypt and we celebrated. He took us out of Gullus and we celebrated when we're still in Gullus. We've been in Gullus more time than we've not been since then. And very harsh Gullus. So how is that? How is that? How does that make any sense? How does it make sense that God should give us redemption that doesn't last? There's a famous story, parenthetically for a moment, about one of the great tzaddikim, I believe, the Badich if I'm not mistaken, it's hard to know exactly who, which story happened with whom, that he was told from on high that there's another Yid who say there was much more appreciated and accepted by Hashem, with some simple Yid in town. So he searched out this Yid. There was nothing remarkable about the Yid. He was a simple Jew. The only thing interesting about him that he enjoyed a good drink. That's it. He worked hard to make a living. And every night he would have a good drink. His Seder is so special. So the, the, the Rebbe summons him to his study the next day and he asks him to tell him about his Seder and he's very embarrassed. He says, you don't want to know about my Seder? He says, no, please tell me. Trust me, Hashem appreciated it. So he tells him, he says, I came home and I was going to make the Seder. But before Pesach starts, I have a minute every day. I say L'chaim to God on a cup of vodka. That's my minute. Since I know for eight days I can't do it. So I took eight cups, I did eight L'chaims. Aha! By then I, I, was, I, was, I fell fast asleep. Comes time to go to shul and to have a say there. My wife tries to wake me up and then I'm not moving. Hours go by. Everyone's ready home from shul. My wife tries to wake me again. Nothing doing. I'm sleeping way into the night. Finally, it's close to midnight. My wife wakes me up. It's, it's terrible. It's Seder. You're sleeping. It's going to be gonna be past the deadline of eating the Afrikaim and get up. So I come to the table. I wobble myself to the table. I see the whole Seder. And I, I look at the Seder and I think to myself and I turn to Hashem and I say, Hashem, what is the Seder about? That we were slaves and we were in Golos and we were suffering and you freed us. Guess what? We're back in Golos. We still have tzaddis and we can't survive and we all work too hard. And the, the, the local barons, the poet, the landowner, the puddits beats us and locks us up and slaves us and tortures us. This is freedom. You took us out of Golos and we're back in Golos. Take us out. Again, but this time for real. That was my whole Seder. I didn't do that. God, that was my whole Seder. And I drank the four cups. I ate the matzah. I went back to sleep. And the Badich whatever, whoever it was, told him that this Seder was extremely accepted by Hashem because it was so sincere. It was so real. It was lacking a lot of parts. I don't think we should try this at home. But by him, it was coming with such sincerity. You want me to celebrate freedom? There's no gullus. 
this, this, I, ach, is there a gallus? And what, what's the big simcha? So the Rebbe said, that's the question that every person should be asking about a Seder. Every child asks. You tell me we're free, we're still in gallus. Think about the Ukrainian, the Yidin, who this year are sitting wherever they are, exiled from their homes, and, and, and they're supposed to sit back and say, wow, machayet. Truth is, we're all like that. We just that we convince ourselves that life is good, but gallus is gallus. So how is that ex- explainable? How could Hashem do something that doesn't last? And, and, and the next question, and, and by extension of that first one, how come these poor people have to say that? The kid knows that every Jewish home is poor people. They get stuck at the help from Moish Chitim. Poor people. We're supposed to be God's people that were chosen. We came out with great wealth, and that's our reward. We're supposed to be a wealthy people forever. We're Hashem's people. The third question, also in the same lines, how come there are rebels? There are people that are uh, that are sinners and confused, totally lost. We have at the Seder itself, we have the Chacham, we have the Rosh, the sinful, the wicked child. We have people that are totally lost and they don't know about mitzvahs and they, don't, they seem not to care about mitzvahs. Um, what the Rebbe calls in the Sicha, there's poverty and there's a, a spiritual poverty, which means a lack of knowledge and lack of interest. So these are the three questions, which are really one extension of one question. How could again be another gullus after the redemption? And by extension, how could there be poverty and how could there be spiritual and mental poverty, which is rampant? Most Jews, many Jews don't know what's going on, which way is up, what's Yantif, what's Pesach, what's Tevishter, what's Tater. And this is called freedom. This is that we are, we're done, we arrived. We're supposed to sit back and say, aha, Machaya, this is great. It's not so great. These are pivotal questions on the whole Seder. They bring into question the entire thing. And therefore, it needs to be addressed immediately. Says the Rebbe, it's addressed in Helach Ma'anyu in that introduction, before we even ask the questions. And we make a statement, and the theme of the statement is that even though we came out of Egypt, we're still in Egypt. It wasn't a final exodus. It began a process of exodus that will end when we came to the Beis Hamikdash, or more generally when Mashiach comes to the Beis Hamikdash. So yes, it's a special day because it opened up the channels, the floodgates, for the concept of freedom, but that process is still ongoing. And we did not actually become totally freed from Egypt. And that's why the Haggadah writes, this is the bread of affliction that we ate in the land of Egypt, even though they ate it on the way out. But we emphasize that even now they ate it on the way out or they ate it when they left, it was still in Egypt. It's bringing home the point that, that Egypt is ongoing. The exodus happened in Egypt, so to speak. The freedom is not a complete freedom. It's a, it's a freedom that is completely tainted by exodus. It's a beginning of a process of freedom, yes but it's not done. And that's why the continuation of the piece emphasizes whoever's hungry, come and eat. This is not an invitation to poor people. That invitation, hopefully, you already gave to the people when you met them in shul or before you made Kiddush. This is a statement that the fact of that fact that we are not completely emancipated and Pesach was only the beginning of the process. That's why we still have to invite poor people and we still have poor people. And that's why we say this year we're slaves, next year we're going to be free, meaning we speak of an ultimate freedom that will come tomorrow or next year, because the process is not finished, it's only begun. So in a way, we lift the entire question, as we'll see all the questions, but primarily and first and foremost, lift the entire question of what's happening at this Seder. Where is the culmination of this emancipation, of this miraculous freedom when there's so much service? It's not finished. It was not a final job. It was a beginning of a process, which is what the theme of that first piece of Hey Lachma Anya is about as an introduction to the entire set. 
Why was it only the beginning of the process? Why didn't it just happen the way it was supposed to happen? And the answer is because the Jews fell so low spiritually that they were not really ready for freedom. There's two types of freedoms. There's two types of people that rise above challenges. Let's use the analogy of an addict, God forbid. Person in recovery. And one is that the person rehabilitates and takes the program and does whatever they need to do over time. And they begin to find the inner strength. They become a better person. They transform, they this, they uh, begin to rehabilitate. It's hard to use an addict as an example because the rule, the principle officially is that you're always in recovery. But I still think it's a, it's a, it's a relevant uh, example. The, the person has, uh, has, has begun to pull themselves out of the bootstraps. Then there's another person who has not. They hit bottom. But a good friend is schlepping them out and keeping an eye on them and helping them and giving them a, bailing them out from their debts and their problems and trying to give them another fresh start. But they have not done it. These are the two ways. The first one is much more meaningful. The second one is very shallow. You didn't do it. You're not free. You've been freed. You've been bailed out. Your parents came and bailed you out from jail. Are you a free person? You're not. You just got another chance. The plan was for it to be in the way of the former way that the Jews should be rehabilitated and, and, and be elevated. Why so? Because the whole purpose of Mitzrayim was to elevate the Jews and through them the whole world from the sin of the tree of knowledge. The sin of the tree of knowledge, which by extension took the whole world and brought an impurity to the world. And remove the Shekhinah, as the Rebbe brings from the Medrash and the famous Mimer, Basil Lagani, the first Mimer of the Rebbe building on the previous Rebbe's Mimer. And in the beginning, Hashem was in this world. And then the sin of Eitz Adas, and then the subsequent six sins moved it all the way up to the highest heaven. So the world was a place of sinfulness, a place where godliness was kicked out seven times over. And in order to transform that and bring the Shekhinah back down, which was the seven generations of Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, all the way to Meshach Rabbeinu, we had to have the Egyptian exile. The Egyptian exile was a purifying thing. It was like putting the Jews in a kiln. It's called Kura Habarzel, which, uh, which you know, burns out all the negativity and the Jewish people would be transformed uh, and, and cleansed once and for all. And through them, the whole world would be ready for, for Meshach, for redemption, for perfection. No longer any sin, no longer any impurity, and the first revelation at Sinai and then the temple would have been the final temple. That's it. However, it didn't work that way. I mean, on the surface, it seems like the plan didn't work out exactly as planned. Obviously, everything is by Hashem's plan. But the reality is the Jews fell very, very low. The Egyptians, it says in many places, overdid their shlichos, their job of enslaving the Jews, and they got too involved and too excited about it. And, 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 and mirroring that, the Jews too fell low and low and low. And it says they worship idols just like their Egyptian counterparts. And therefore, when it came time for Exodus, we were at the 49th level of impurity. Hashem had to schlep us out. It's like a friend who schleps you out when you hit rock bottom, when, you, when you're about to get arrested. You're not redeeming yourself. You're being schlepped out just before it's too late to be redeemed. And now you have to start working on the process of redemption. And that's how Exodus really worked out. And therefore, it wasn't a finished product. And therefore, what is it? It's a product of a process 
the beginning of a process that will last until the Beis or until Mashiach, the third Beis You might say parenthetically that ultimately it's a positive. The Rebbe revisits it at the end, that we will have done it through our hard work and we hit, really hit the bottom, etc. But whatever the reason, it's a much larger conversation than this particular zila. But that's how it worked out, and that's obviously how it was meant to work out. So this explains all the questions the Rebbe asked, and the whole theme of the Haggadah. Again, the heading and the introduction is the Heilach Ma'anya. This is a bread of Egypt. We're still in Egypt. We still have poor people that we have to invite, and we still have to hope and pray that next year we'll be free. Not now. This is not the end. This is not what a Yid calls real freedom. In the best of times and wells, far from it. Because the real freedom, when there's no room for any more gullus, is only when the, the Jewish people and through them the world have arrived and spiritually matured and truly, in fact, become elevated from exile and from sin. Sin here meaning the sin of the eight tadas and the seven cardinal sins, and by extension, all sin, which is really resulted. So let's go through the other questions. So based on that, let's bring up our little list. So we already answered the first piece of the Helach Ma'anya. Now, why does it say here that if Hashem would not take us out, we would still be slaves? Wasn't there an, ex an expiration date of 400 years? Yeah, that's true. If, the, that if, if things would work normally and the Jews would be schlepped, would be rehabilitated. But the Jews went to a much lower place. And they were so low that they could have extended it. Alternatively, the Rebbe says, they could be like the Jewish slave who after six years, when he's supposed to be free, says, I want to stay. And the Jews, in fact, said many times to Moshe Rabbeinu, to Moses, hey, let's go back to Egypt. We know four-fifths of the Jews actually didn't leave Egypt. So that 400 years is no guarantee. They weren't ready for emancipation. Hashem took them out. And that's why the emphasis of the Abadim Ayinu says the Rebbe is not that we were slaves in Egypt and we became free. We didn't become free. Hashem took us out of Egypt, but he didn't take Egypt out of us, as the saying goes. And the language is, God took us out with a strong hand, which means contrary to, to the natural flow. The language that we ran away from Egypt, like an addict who has to just say no, he can't even walk on the block of the liquor store because it's still calling him. He's not free. He's not above it. He's in it. And so we have to run away. When Mashiach comes, it says in the Haftarah that we read on the last day of Pesach, the Haftarah of Yeshaya by Zay, I believe the language is that, that when Mashiach comes, we're not going to rush. What's there to rush? We're not going to be running away from evil because we have been rehabilitated. We have, been, we have realized the value of goodness and elokus and godliness and holiness, and we're removed from evil. We're not interested. There's nowhere to run. We're not afraid of, of, of being tempted by negativity. It's like a, a person who's not going to walk into a fire or walk into a moving truck. A yid wouldn't be able to do an aveda or or, or be in touch with with negativity and tumah and impurity. No way, done. But that's in the future. With the Egyptian exodus, we say the exact opposite. Kibara ha'am, the people escaped. They physically escaped because proverbially they had to escape. They had to run away. They had to just say no. They had to cross the street, just run away from impurity. And therefore, in such a state, they could have either, as the Rebbe says, in two ways, they could have extended the 400 years because they didn't really graduate the program, so to speak. And even if not, because Hashem never lies, so he would have taken them out, they would have gone back. As they threatened to do many times. But Hashem said, no, he wanted the process to begin. 
And therefore, he took us out with a strong hand, which means against the rules of the game. And that's why we, we, we say over here in this piece that our ancestors were idol worshippers. But now God brought us close to him. It's referring now to us, not just to Abraham. This is not a history lesson. This is a, a, a program that we are experiencing on Pesach. Our ancestors worshipped idols, including us, meaning all of us need to elevate ourselves. We're all in some kind of state of exile, lacking perfect faith or trust in Hashem and, and therefore living lives that are not fully joyous and free of anxiety and worry and all the things that are contrary to Jewish life and sin and impurity. And therefore, we're, 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 we're in exodus. We're in Egypt. But don't feel so bad. That's how the story begins. It even began so with Abraham. But now, meaning tonight, Tafshim Pebei is at your Seder. Hashem brings you close. Us. That's the language, not them. But Hashem brings us close. We still have not done all the work. We still have not fully emulated Avraham, Avinu, Abraham, who actually did the work and actually did become, on his own, a, a, a person standing with on two feet. As the language is when it compares him to Noyach, that he stood on his own two feet. He didn't need Hashem the whole time to support him. No, we we're, were we're, we're, we're saved by God, meaning us. Our inspiration is primarily Hashem pushing us and schlepping us. We're not yet, uh, at least the vast, vast majority of us, except perhaps the, the tzaddikim, few and far between. We're, Hashem is taking us out. When now? That's the theme of Pesach. Each year, Hashem helps us or schleps us a little more. And brings us close to his service. Now. And that's why it's top down in the language. Because that's uh, the level that we're at. And that's the problem. It's also the miracle. It's also why we give praise. Thank God for that. But that's also the problem. Why our exodus has not been complete. And why we're still waiting for the Shana Babi Rishalayim. For next year in Jerusalem. For the Gula. And that's why we take this piece of Ahisham. That we talk about the fact that in every generation is evil. And it takes a miracle to save us. Why should we have to be saved? Why should evil have any power over goodness? And the answer is, you're right. Ultimately, when the world is rehabilitated and the, and the Kedusha uh, takes over and all tumor, all impurity and all sin, going all the way back to the first sins and all sin that, subs that subsequent to it and resultant of it is eradicated, then there will never be any power of evil. Evil won't stand the chance to Kedusha. But until that day, in every generation, evil comes this close to Chas Rosham, wiping out Hashem's chosen people. And how are we saved? Because Hashem saves them. Again, the theme that our salvation physically and spiritually and our redemption physically and spiritually is Hashem's doing. It's not yet our own doing. We haven't overcome. We haven't. And therefore, it is still a process. And then we come to the culmination of the Haggadah of the Magid. And we say over there. But then in the end, Hashem says, I'm going to build a base Amigdash. And he calls it the house of chosenness to forgive all your sins. Here, the, here is the Haggadah telling us it's not going to be like this forever. This story will have a happy ending. This process will be completed. When in the Beis Hamikdash, I guess in some degree it was completed in the first Beis Hamikdash, the second Beis Hamikdash, but ultimately it's the third Beis Hamikdash when it's culminated, and there will be none of these uh, symptoms of exile that we just discussed—poverty and mental poverty and spiritual poverty—and and, and 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 people struggling with worshiping idols and proverbial idols and, and enemies rising up against us. None of this. Smart, wicked sons. Everybody is smart and committed. Everyone is wealthy. No one needs to, to invite poor people. But that will only come when the building of the Beis Hamikdash, because the Holy Temple is the culmination of the process. 
which will which will cleanse us from all our sins. That's one of the things that the temple does. And it's a big part of the temple. The temple has other themes. But in the context of the Haggadah, since the whole idea of Exodus, it's to cleanse us of sins and to cleanse the world of sin, going back to all the impurity caused by the seven original cardinal sins that chased away the Shekhinah from earth to the seventh heaven. And the whole idea of Pesach is to bring it back down as Moshe was the seventh of the Rebbe says in Basilagani, and the seventh is beloved, and they brought the Shekhinah down, which is through Exodus and Sinai. And yet there's still subsequent exiles because it wasn't totally brought down. It wasn't, the evil wasn't eradicated completely. And therefore, when the temple is built, or the temple will be built, this will then cleanse all of our sins, which means it will then bring the world to its fruition, and there's no more impurity. And then you will not have any of these questions and these issues. So this answers these last questions. A, why is the reason given for the final layenu? Because this is really the answer to the whole thing in the end. This is the culmination. B, what does forgiveness have to do with the temple? Because... Yes, the temple has other themes. Hashra's Hashchina, revelation of the Shechina, but it's, I guess it's all connected. The problem we're trying to overcome to bring the Shechina is the problem of the sin, which, which exile of Egypt was supposed to cleanse and failed to do it completely at least and only began the process and the temple will finish. So it's very important. It's very central to Pesach. And that's why it's important to the Exodus story. It's the purpose of Exodus. This is not just about the fact that we were slaves and now we went free. It's the fact that we were spiritually slaves because we, would, we had a purpose to cleanse the world and the world will then be cleansed. What about the answer to this question here? Why is it, why is it referred to in the Haggadah as the base of Chira, the, the house of choice, the, the chosen temple and not base Hamikdash? So the Rebbe answers this by pointing out that a person might ask after listening to this whole thing, and I have a whole different view of the Seder. Seder is not a celebration of a, of a finished story. It's a, it's, it's a discussion of a story that's unfolding as we go. So the, and that ultimately it will have a happy ending. The question is, why did Hashem do it? Why did Hashem allow this to play out? And how is this something positive to celebrate? It doesn't seem like a good story. It seems like a pretty painful story. And, and all the tzaddis of the Yidden throughout and all of the sins of the Yidden throughout would have been a perfect redemption and there would be no tzaddis and no sin. Instead, we have all this for, for thousands of years. So the Rebbe says there's a big plus to it though. And, and the Rebbe is going from a particular angle, many uh, discussions in Hasidus and in the Sikhs, the positive angle of Gullus, even though the Rebbe in the end said that all of those were already accomplished and were ready for Mashiach. But the, there are various explanations. And in this context, the Rebbe says this, where do you see the true love that Hashem has for the Jewish people when they're sinners? I'm saying it very plainly. The Haftorah, the prophet says, Ach, Esav, Liyankim, Esav, the Gentile, is a brother to Jacob. And yet I love Yaakov, Jacob. Which means even when Jacob sins, when the Jew sins, and he's fablunged and he's lost spiritually, and he, he looks like a guy. He looks like a brother to Esau. Still God says, no, I love him. What's the significance of that statement? Where do you see that your child is truly beloved to you like a parent loves a child? What does that mean? Unconditional. When your child doesn't best their neighbor, if your child is much better than the neighbor's kid, so why shouldn't you love your kid? He's so good. You don't yet see the essential love. 
However, if your child is the same as the neighbor, or sometimes worse, looks like every other kid in the block. Making trouble, getting in trouble, a mess. And yet, when it comes down to it, are you kidding? This is my kid, I'll give my life, I'll, I'll, I'll give my right hand for it. Why? Aha, because it's my child, there's an essence. So this is the concept of Bechira. We talk about Hashem calling the Holy Temple His chosen temple. What does it mean chosen? Many meanings, but in this context, that Hashem chose to rest among the Jewish people, not because we're better, but because we're His. He chose Jewish people not because they're better, but because they're His. Even when they're not better, and in fact, when they're not better, is when you see the truth that they're His. You see the essential bond, which is in a sense the deepest connection we have to Hashem. That Hashem of Yid is just literally part of Hashem, and therefore Hashem can't it can't. Uh, choose anyone else, not because he's not choosing over virtue. When you choose, you don't choose for virtue, choose for essence. Because if there's virtue, then there's no choice. And therefore, it's referred to as Beis HaBechira, and therefore this underscores the whole purpose, if you will, the positive spin, the important silver lining of the whole way Hashem played out the Golos. That yes, there was Golos, and repeated, and the Jewish people have to have a process of exodus to ultimately uh, come to what they need to be until the base Hamikdash, because this brings home to the Abishan and to us the essential bond that Yid has to Hashem, and ultimately that becomes the way we truly do tshuva and forgive our sins and cleanse our sins and cleanse the world and the Jewish people from impurity, because we reveal the essential bond, the pintle Yid, and if you reveal the essence, then if the Yid feels essentially connected to Hashem, that will ultimately affect every other part of them, and they will in fact be cleansed and purified. So this becomes now a whole new theme of the Haggadah. So if you look at this story, you say to yourself, what is the takeaway? What is the lesson? What is it ever telling me as I sit down to the Seder? I, I, there's much depth here, but two main points. Number one is the Seder of Pesach, in light of the Rebbe's teachings and of Chassidus in general, is not a, a history. It's not a story of something that happened in the past at all. That's a very minor part of it. It's a process that's happening right now. It is an exercise in spiritual growth, personal growth of each individual from their own Yetzirah and their own Egypt and us as a people collectively, over rising above everything as the Rebbe would write in many of his letters of Pesach, that we should have true emancipation and true freedom, spiritual freedom from any conceivable obstacle to the freedom and the joy. Worry, anxiety, and, which all stem from a lack of perfect faith and trust in Hashem let alone lack of material material needs or, God forbid, health or nachas, whatever it is. All of these things are obstacles that shouldn't be and that need to go away and will go away when Mashiach comes. But part of the process is that we will do it. The fact that Hashem does it, that he did then. And that doesn't work. That doesn't finish the product. That only starts the process. Pesach Seder now is not a story of history. It is, a, you might say, a therapy session. That's the language I used in my class here in Port Washington. We did the Zoom. It's a therapy session, but a spiritual therapy where we're each going to grow. We should look different after the Seder than before the Seder. And the same thing, the second Seder, that we're each going to grow and each personally get ready for a personal freedom and then collectively as a people. So that's number one, a huge takeaway. Sit down to the Seder, not to tell a story. But to the other meaning is to illuminate Exodus in our own lives and go out of our own limitations by allowing the spiritual revelation and all the gifts that Hashem gave us, Teda and the Rabbeim and everything else, to not be gifts that just come freely, but that we process and internalize and become 
free people, become people of true emunah and bitachin, trust in Hashem, etc. And the other takeaway, which goes hand in hand with this, is that if you see a yid who's spiritually a mess, or emotionally a mess, or has impurity, or has sin, if you see that Jew down the block, if you see the Jew in your house, if you see the Jew in the mirror, it doesn't make a difference. On some level, it's true with every one of us. Recognize that herein lies a tremendous virtue and actually the greatest virtue of the year, the greatest value, preciousness of the year, which is namely what? The fact that he's one with Hashem. He was chosen by Hashem. Remember, if we have virtue over the non-Jew, there's no choice. You don't, if you give me something wonderful and something not, give me a beautiful apple and a rotten apple, do I have a choice? They compel the choice. Choice means they're both exactly the same. And I choose one that I say, no, this is mine. So therefore the, the imperfection and the inner enslavement and the sin and et al, all these things that we talked about within ourselves and others, obviously we have to try to refine ourselves from it, but they are in a sense, I'm not going to say our greatest gift, but our greatest badge of honor. They are indication. Hashem's love for us is, 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 is indescribable. It is essential. It is unconditional. It's choice. Like a parent loves a child, and even more so, because we're actually part of Hashem Himself, even more than a child and a parent. And therefore, the perfection is only there to allow us the ability through the imperfection to recognize this essential bond, as the Sikha says, to recognize the chosen temple or the chosen yid or the chosen relationship in plain English, to recognize the fact that we are essentially connected to Hashem. And when we recognize and feel that connection, that's when it will. Per- penetrate into our into every part of our personalities and change the way we think and the way we feel and the way we behave. And therefore, in a very real way, the Rebbe is saying, I think that the sin or the negativity or the imperfection or what have you are key to the process of this ultimate rehabilitation, if you will, of true exodus from our perspective, from our point where we don't have to run away from evil, but we are removed and elevated from it. It should be a kosher, a fredach and pesach, and we should not have to do this again and again. And it should be Takya, uh, the real freedom forever and ever, together with the Rebbe, uh, here, the Gashmias in our world. A good Yantif.